Road trips and Bible reading are both similar. They're similar because both require an ability to navigate the terrain as well as an ability to avoid roadblocks. And today, I want to share with you four roadblocks that you need to avoid when you're reading the Bible and give you some helpful resources to use. Let's get started. Welcome to episode number 62 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Kevin Morris here with you. Are you surprised? Who else would be here with you but me? This is my podcast. It just makes sense. I'm glad to have you alongside with me for yet another episode and uh, mentioned it last episode, but super excited about the fact that we are seriously past the 2000 download number. I mean, that's an exciting accomplishment for me. And uh, it just makes me want to extend my appreciation to all of you because you've been listening for months, over a year now. It's hard to believe it's even been a podcast for that long. But I can't really stress enough how excited I am uh, to have more and more people listening literally from all over the world. It just blows my mind every time I look at it. Uh, This is not the most popular podcast in all of iTunes or anything like that, but for me, just starting this from nothing, seriously, from the ground up, um, to see it grow, um, just to influence and and have some conversation and dialogue with all of you, whether you're in your vehicle or or out jogging or whatever it is that you do as you're listening to podcasts. It's so uh, exciting to me that I get to um, participate with you in your life and help you along the way, hopefully. Speaking of helping you along the way, that's exactly what this episode is about today because I want to share with you four of those roadblocks, right? Using the analogy of driving, going on a road trip or trying to make it to some kind of a destination, um, you have the ability to either get there safe and sound with no problems or you think of all the issues that happen when you don't have such a good trip, right? You get stuck in traffic, your car breaks down, Um, You get to a detour, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go. We run into those similar kinds of problems when we're reading the Bible. We try to follow all the practical advice, like myself and other people give, of how to do a much better job at reading our Bibles. But there comes a point when you have to take all of that knowledge, all of that mindset, and you have to actually put it into practice. You have to actually enter into the actual process of reading your Bible. And sometimes when that happens, you come into unforeseen roadblocks, unforeseen hiccups or problems, and you have to know how to navigate your way through those problems. What do you do in this particular scenario? It reminds me of a current situation I've been experiencing um, at the workplace and something that's actually happened before, but this one's kind of a new um, a new issue. So when you work in a team and the person who leads that team is just full of knowledge, full of the, the what-if scenario, he's the what-if scenario solver, right? Any, any problem that comes up, he knows exactly what to do. And somebody like myself or other people that are alongside this person trying to learn and, and train underneath 
him are doing our very best to gather as much knowledge as we can. But there comes a time where this person, even though I'm speaking of this hypothetically, this is actually a real thing, well, he got a new job. And when he got a new job, he left our building, went to the other building that he was working with the same company. But what it required of me and some other people is it meant that we had to pick up where he left off and try to take whatever limited knowledge that we had and make the best of it and learn as we went. And it just happens in the same way. I don't even know if it really depends on what kind of job you have. It's just part of that process, part of that learning curve, that when somebody like me or somebody that's a little more inexperienced runs into that next problem, when you're short, the person who has all of the answers, you always end up kicking yourself and saying, why didn't I ask what to do when this happens? Or why didn't I ask, what would you do if this came up or this, this problem came up? How would you solve it? And you just don't think of it. You're expecting everything to go well. You think you know enough to get by. And then you come into a scenario where you have to do some problem solving. You have to deal with the roadblock that's in place. And it requires you to know how to navigate. And that is exactly what we all experience from one degree to another when we're reading our Bibles. We come into a place where we're met with roadblocks that we have to know how to navigate. We have to know how to get past those roadblocks so that we can arrive at our destination safely. And that destination for this particular analogy is to have a successful and enjoyable time reading our Bibles, whether that means getting an answer to the theological or doctrinal problem that we're trying to investigate, that we're trying to think about, whether it means completing our read-through of the Bible in a year's time, or whether it means completing our read-through of a particular book in the Bible, whatever kind of problem you're trying to solve when you're reading your Bible, you have to know what to do. You have to know how to get to that eventual conclusion, that eventual resolution, and not get stuck at those roadblocks that take so much of our time and concentration and and joy in a lot of ways as well. Okay, so I want to give you four roadblocks to think about, okay, and how to deal with them, how to get around them, what to do. The first one has got to be how to navigate through the roadblock of time. This is something that every single person, without exception, deals with when we're reading the Bible. Case in point is this. We are not alive at the time of the Bible being written. We are not the contemporary audience, to put it one way. We are inheritors of the content of the Bible. We get to benefit greatly from the fact that the Bible is written and that we get to enjoy what is said in it, but we are not alive at the time of its writing. I mean, that is one of the most obvious statements I could possibly make. You know this. You wouldn't argue with me about this, but you have to know that that is a hurdle. That is a roadblock. That is a potential hazard that we're going to run into. For example, think about the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is so great because there are so many nitty-gritty issues that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians of how the life of a church 
participating together as Christians, what that life should look like on an individual level and what it should look like on a corporate level as a body of believers together. And when you get to chapter 11, Paul says something really interesting to the Corinthians. He says this, he says, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. I can't help but think, how convenient must it have been for the Corinthians to be able to say, okay, Paul, I'm glad you're going to give further direction when you get here, because frankly, we have some questions ourselves about chapters 12 through 14 in this letter. Of course, I'm making a joke there, because if you know your Bible, if you know 1 Corinthians, you know that chapters 12 through 14 include Paul's treatment of the spiritual gifts. One of the most debated parts of that entire letter, because um, it really comes down to whether you consider yourself a, a Pentecostal or a charismatic or not, right? What way do the spiritual gifts function today? How clear is Paul actually being with what he's explaining there? I mean, how convenient would it be for us to have Paul at our beck and call? We read Ephesians, we read Galatians, we read the book of Romans, we read 1 Corinthians, and we say, you know, I actually have some questions about some of this, and there you have it, the Apostle Paul is still alive and well, and you get to talk to him in person and get some clarification. If we, if we had the luxury of doing that, then at least we would have um, the ability to, to, to solve some of those issues that we think are not necessarily as clear and cut and dry as we would hope for them to be in, in the Bible. But it is also helpful to, to say that even when people like Paul or the Apostle John or others were alive, there was still controversy about doctrine. So just because they were there doesn't mean that all the issues were solved. But it does mean that, to put it this way, as one really helpful book that I'm going to mention to you in just a minute says, I'm just going to quote it for now, Simply put, the world has changed in substantial ways since then. And since then, meaning since the time the Bible was written, the world has changed in substantial ways. We are not alive in the same time. The world looks quite different. And from a very contemporary context, we are living, at least at the time of this recording, we're living in the wake of, of a pandemic. We're living in the wake of rioting and unrest in the United States. I mean, the world is certainly a different place, not necessarily um, altogether different, right? We're still rioting, still sickness and things like that back in the time of the writing of the New Testament and the Old Testament, but still, we're in a different world. We're in a technological age, especially. And so it's important for us to know that when you open up your Bible, you go to a book that has some kind of immediate reference to time, you have to sit back and consider the fact that we're not alive during the time that things were written. And so one of the worst things that we can do is impose our own culture, impose our own circumstances into the text as if to say that what Paul is saying here speaks directly to me in my life and all of the circumstances and disregards everything happening in Paul's own immediate context or any other writer for that matter. 
Now, again, this this is a very crucial thing for us to do with balance, because what I'm not saying here is you have to realize that the Bible was not written during your contemporary culture. Therefore, nothing in it is relevant to the contemporary culture. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we can't read a meaning into the Bible that would make absolutely no sense during Paul's time of living. During the, the time of the Roman Empire, the, the world in which Paul was participating in, pastoring in, evangelizing as a, as a missionary, we have to realize that is not the same world in which we live. Yet at the same time, we also don't want to make the mistake of saying all we should possibly do when we read our Bibles is to take consideration of everything cultural and historical during the time of the Bible and totally disregard our own contemporary culture. That's the other extreme, right? That's the other angle of getting at this, and both of them are wrong because what you're doing there is you're essentially saying that Christianity is nothing more than a study of history. And if you know the culture, you know the history, then you have the whole Bible figured out, and it's totally irrelevant to the world in which we live. I was surprised, I shouldn't say surprised, I guess probably disappointed is is a better word. Um, Different Christian circles have people that they look up to and enjoy to listen to, and if you hang around long enough in conversations with different denominations and different um, historical representations of Christianity, um, you'll quickly learn that we do not see eye to eye between each and every denomination. And uh, keep that keep that thought in the back of your mind, because I actually have um, some planned episodes in the future to talk about denominations and doctrines and all those things. So if that interests you, then you'll be glad to know. I'm going to kind of go into that rabbit trail a little bit here soon. Um, But you always have the spokesman representing different denominations, and you either agree with the person because they're, for lack of a better phrase, a Christian celebrity, right? They're a big, uh, influential voice. Um, You either like them or you don't. And uh, one of those people um, that's a very well-known academic uh, by the name of N.T. Wright, uh, somebody that I disagree with in a whole lot of ways. I'm not going to say I, I dislike anything he possibly has to say, but there have been some pretty big controversies in the last few years. Anyways, I say that because one of the things that he said when he was asked recently about the coronavirus pandemic, he said, what is, he was asked, what does the Bible have to say about this pandemic? What can we learn about this pandemic and how to live in light of it from the Bible. And his answer, to paraphrase here, his answer was essentially, this virus has nothing to do with the Bible, and you're not going to find any relevance in the Bible to this particular situation. There's no direct theological relationship or biblical relationship to this virus. And I just thought that was such a unfortunate thing to say. Again, remember that that's kind of the that that other side of the coin extreme because essentially what he's saying is the time and the relevancy of the Bible is found in its 
immediate culture in which it was written, in which the immediate audience lived, and anything beyond that does not have a direct correlation to our world today. We don't want to make that mistake. We have to be careful, we have to be balanced, but we don't want to dismiss everything historical in the name of contemporary or everything contemporary in the name of historical. Okay, so there's your first roadblock. Okay, second roadblock is culture. Now, they both sound similar, right? Time and culture, because I've mentioned culture a few different times. Well, let me give you an example of how culture is different from the roadblock of time. When we come to the issue of culture, there are huge implications because you start thinking about how does the issues of sexuality, the issues of gender, how does the way that that the New Testament writers especially, how does the way that they treat those issues and prescribe commandments to the church, how do those correlate to our culture today? It comes down to one of those fundamental issues of how much of the Bible is binding for today and how much of it is just an an instance of that culture, not necessarily an issue of giving a broad commandment to keep at all times. One of the most um, important examples of that, I think, is again in the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, among the different things that Paul is handling in there is the issue of head coverings. Now, for those of us in the West, that may sound like a very strange thing to even address. Probably not as much in the East, because you do see it even now in, in um, the contemporary culture of of the Eastern world. But in the West, um, beyond just instances of seeing Muslims in Western countries, head coverings are virtually non-existent uh, for the most part. And so when we come to a chapter such as 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's talking about head coverings and what it means for women and how it relates to worship, it might make us just have absolutely no idea what to do with that. It might make us want to throw it out entirely because we say, okay, um, this doesn't have anything to do with my life. This doesn't have anything to do with my church. I don't see anybody in my church worrying about head coverings. This must be some kind of first century issue that has no relationship to today. Well, I'm going to actually make a case here. Um, You'd be surprised. Um, There are actually denominations, or let me at least say churches within denominations. I don't know that there's a denomination that makes a a stance, a firm stance on the issue of head coverings. But still, there are churches that do have a firm stance on head coverings, and the whole reason that they do, and most of the ones I'm talking about are ones that actually believe that head covering as a practice should still be done today. Well, the reason that they arrive at that conclusion is because they don't see the issue of head coverings as purely a cultural issue. Now, the purpose of this episode is not to determine whether or not head coverings are a legitimate practice for today. The purpose of this episode is to introduce to you the idea of culture and how it could be a roadblock. Okay, let's say 
you've never really thought about the issue of head coverings, but you come to that passage talking about it in 1 Corinthians 11, and you're struck with an idea of just confusion and maybe even hopelessness, because you've never stumbled across something quite like this, and now that you have, you don't even know how you're Bible reading can go on for another minute until you're able to solve this issue of should I be concerned? Should I should I concern myself with the idea of head coverings or not? That's a culture roadblock. And when we come to that kind of roadblock, we have to decide what are we going to do here? Are we going to get stuck? Are we going to try to bypass it? Are we going to try to deal with it in some way? Again, I'm going to offer solutions at the end of this uh, episode, but that is that cultural roadblock. That's the one that we have to think about. And just for another quick example, I don't want to get stuck on head coverings. I've been, I don't even know how many times I've said the word head covering uh, during this episode. So here's another example. When Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed, well, that's a cultural phenomenon, right? We're not talking about mustards the way that we think about mustards, at least where I live here in the South. We're not talking about mustard greens. These are definitely, this is a different kind of mustard seed, but that could be argued as a cultural analogy, one that doesn't have any significance for us because we don't live in a time, or at least we don't live in a place where mustard seed is part of the economy, part of the landscape, part of the cultural climate in which. We live. Now, again, those are just ideas of culture, cultural roadblocks, and they're examples of those particular passages that we have to deal with. We, we could get totally um, disabled when we reach them if we don't know what to do when we get there, okay? Now, the third roadblock that I want you to be aware of is the roadblock of language. Now, this is a newsflash for you. You might not know this, but the Bible was not originally written in English. I know that should probably come as a big shock to you, because you probably thought that it did. You probably thought it was written sometime back in the 1950s, or maybe even the 40s, or even even worse, you may have thought it was written hundreds of years ago, but that the King James Version, the English Version, of the Bible, the historical English version of the Bible, the most, uh, the the one that most people have kind of rallied behind, not the first English translation ever, but the most widely spread English translation. You might have thought the Bible was written in 1611. Uh, I'm I'm joking here, but I'm making the case that we have to realize that the Bible predates the English language. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament and Koine Greek in the New Testament. It's a really fascinating um, historical phenomenon, the way that the Bible was written, especially in the New Testament in Koine Greek, because that was um, the common modern language of everyday people. You might think that biblical Greek is hard to understand. One of the reasons it's hard to understand is because it's a dead language. It's not a variation of Greek that's spoke in our common day and age anymore. It's an ancient language. It, the, the best analogy that I really have is 
Old English versus English today. When you read uh, like a King James Bible, for instance, uh, one that hasn't been edited or put into any kind of modern uh, terminology, just the original King James version, there's a lot of words that you may dis- that you may recognize, but a lot of those words had different definitions back then than they do now. And there's also different words altogether that we just don't use anymore because English has um, evolved and expanded and even simplified in some ways to what we have today. Same kind of thing with Biblical Greek, which is Koine Greek versus Greek that people in Greece would speak today. That's one of the reasons why the language seems to be so difficult to learn for, for people in seminary or Bible college, or if you just happen to hop on a website or use study use a study tool every now and then to look up a Greek word and it seems so difficult. It's not because the language itself was hard, because again, it was the common language of the people in all of the Roman Empire. It wasn't the um, the lofty language, it wasn't the hierarchical language of the wealthy and the elite, it was the the common language of the people, just like normal English is the language for, for you and I. But, since that's the case, since the Bible was not originally written in English, we have barriers when we get to the Bible. That barrier we don't often see because when we're reading our Bibles, unless you just happen to be a scholar in Hebrew or Greek and you can just read it in those original languages, I'm guessing that your Bible is written in English. But what's interesting at this point is that you could have one of hundreds of English translations, and those translations vary from translators trying to capture the most literal sense of those Greek words all the way to the other end of the spectrum where translators are trying to basically pre-interpret the text for you, and they translate it not word for word, but idea for idea or thought for thought, all the way to where, again, as I say, the translators are actually trying to do the interpreting for us and give us the afterthought of their translation process. So that's a hurdle, and it's, it's one that's a little more subtle because we don't see it. It's in English, but not every English Bible is the same. There's not a one-to-one correlation for every single English translation. An ESV Bible is much different from a King James. A New American Standard is much different from the Message or the New Living Translation, right? Are, these are different translations. They have different approaches. They have different goals in mind when they're translating the Bibles for you and I to benefit from. And these are not evil translation companies, okay? I'm not getting on the the conspiracy theory that all translations are trying to take away the historic Orthodox Christian truth. But it does help to know that translators are people, and people do have agendas, and people are biased. Whether those are good or whether they're bad, they still exist. And so you and I must realize that the language difference from the original Old Testament and New Testament is a roadblock or can be a roadblock for what we have in English, because if we just take any old English translation and run with it, 
and make too big of a deal over a particular word or phrase without doing our due diligence to compare other translations and things like that, it can be a huge roadblock to our study and to our progress when we read the Bible. Okay, so that one's number three. It's subtle, but it is so significant. I don't want you to overlook it. Finally, number four is worldview. I mentioned worldview not too long ago in my um, honoring of the life of Ravi Zacharias as the Christian apologist, as the one who dealt with worldviews all the time. But we have to deal with the issue of worldview when it comes to reading our Bibles, okay? The idea of worldview is normally left to the philosophical world. It's left to the ones that care about that thing in in academics. But you have to realize that everyone has a worldview. I just talked about the Bible translators. They have agendas, they have presuppositions, and they're biased. Why? Because they're people, because they're finite, because they are not all-knowing. They learn, they grow, just like you and I. They have ideas, sometimes conflicting opinions with our own opinions, but those are things that we have to realize. In the same way, we have to realize that everyone, without exception, has a worldview. Now, this worldview is not a passive view of the world, but it's an active one. It's one that dictates the course of our lives. It's the one that determines how we read the Bible as well. Um, An an example of this is the popular worldview of postmodernism. This is one that has really risen at the end of the 20th century and has merged into the 21st century. We live kind of in the post, in the aftermath of postmodernism, so we live in the post of postmodernism. However, the ideas and the underlying thoughts of postmodernism are still with us. Postmodernism rejects the idea of absolute truth. This might be completely new to you. You may have never even heard of postmodernism before, but let me give you a idea here of how it relates to our Bible reading. How many people adopt a postmodern reading of the Bible? And the, the way that you could probably see this is in a kind of new day, new meaning mindset. Think of, think of that. How many times have you heard or have you been the one describing that you enjoy reading the Bible because every time you read a particular passage, you get something a little bit different from it. What exactly are we saying when we say we get a different meaning from the Bible every time we read it? Same passage, even. We get a different meaning from it. Well, this postmodern approach is actually a dangerous culprit to Bible study and Bible reading roadblocks because what it does, in essence, is that it actually makes the whole process of Bible interpretation meaningless. If the Bible can mean something new every single time we read it, what exactly is the point of reading it? What is the truth today may not be the truth tomorrow. And it certainly wasn't the truth three days ago. What we are doing with the Bible when we use it this way is that we're treating it as a wax nose, as a wax sculpture, and we're shaping it and molding it and putting it into the design that fits our own agenda, that fits the life that we're after. This is deadly. 
this is incredibly dangerous to Bible reading because, as I say, number one, it makes the whole process meaningless. Number two, it actually turns into a Bible that we are making up as we go along. Yeah, I know the verse says this, but it actually means this. It actually means this meaning that nobody has ever discovered before that conflicts with other verses, but it's okay because the truth of the Bible shifts and changes and is molded into whatever is relevant and appropriate for that particular time. This is the approach of reading the Bible in a way that makes up a worldview to fit our own agendas. Now, maybe you're not doing this, right? Maybe you're not doing this at all. Maybe you understand this danger, and maybe you've already distanced yourself from it, but maybe you're not doing this intentionally, but you actually are doing this because the only time you read the Bible is to try to prove your own point, or the only time you read the Bible is to try to validate a decision in your life, one that you're probably already convicted about, but one that by golly, you're going to find a verse to to prove it, to get so-and-so off your back that's giving you a hard time. Well, maybe they're giving you a hard time. Maybe they're not treating you in Christian love, or maybe they're loving you enough to confront the fact that you're living out of step with what the Bible says. The worst thing you can do is try to get on the offensive and then create your own rendition of the Bible that suits your own needs. But this is something that people do all the time, and it's when we fail to realize the roadblock of worldview. If we dismiss worldview as a reality for all of us, then we open ourselves up to the greatest disrespect that we could give to the Bible, and that is to treat the Bible not as objective, ultimate, unadulterated truth that literally shapes our lives and changes us, but instead a Bible that is a rough outline, that is a skeleton, that we then fill in the spaces according to what we want. And that's a dangerous reality. It's a dangerous roadblock. I want you to avoid it. Okay, so those are the four roadblocks that I want you to avoid. I want you to know about them. I want you to be aware of them. And I want you to avoid them. So naturally, the question then comes, okay, how do I do that? I'm I'm glad you asked because I feel like that's a great question, okay? So here we go. This is rapid fire, but I'm going to give you uh four considerations, four things that will help you. Uh number 1, the issue of time. We don't have time machines. We can't go back in time. We can't pull Paul alongside us and ask him, "Hey, what did you mean in that chapter?" We can't have a spiritual vision of the writers in the Older New Testaments, but what we can do, okay, what we can do is we can invest in a study Bible. It's as simple as that. This isn't going to solve every problem, but a study Bible is a great place to start because you're going to gain from people who have tried their best to God's glory to help bridge that gap of time. These are people who have invested incredible amounts of time and study in the historical background of the time of the Old and New Testament. 
and they have condensed those hours of labor and study into convenient notes, into convenient sentences and paragraphs, and even short essays, and maps and charts and images, for goodness sake, that you can find in study Bibles. You buy a study Bible, you have thousands and thousands of hours of study of academic pursuit for your benefit, and they are as inexpensive as ever. If you don't want to lug one around, they're typically heavy because there's a lot of pages, right? There's a lot of notes. If you don't want to lug one around, just buy one online. Get a digital study Bible, and there you have it at your fingertips, literally. Your phone, your your tablet, your computer, your laptop. It's right there, and you can start to chip away at that gap of time. You're never going to be able to get there. You're never going to be able to get to the contemporary context, at least to the extent to where we would be if we actually lived at that time. But a lot of confusion can be taken away in our ability to learn from those who have studied for our own benefit. Okay, so get yourself a study Bible. I recommend the ESV study Bible. It's my favorite, but get any good study Bible and start using it. And while study Bibles are good for handling the roadblock of culture, just like they do handling the roadblock of time, I think that culture is actually better to be handled with a little bit more of an in-depth study. And I don't mean having to take like a whole bunch of classes or read a dozen books, but I do want to recommend two things for you. Get yourself, number one, an introduction to the Old Testament textbook and introduction to the New Testament textbook. The reason for that is because these really go beyond what you're going to find in a study Bible. So study Bibles kind of give you the big idea. They might go into a little bit of detail, but they kind of just give you the big idea handling of a whole host of different issues. Well, introduction to the Old Testament or introduction to the New Testament books are written with a lot more availability to go into depth. and One of the ways that this is seen is not only in just more pages to read, but it's that books that are introductory like this have enough real estate in their pages to give you multiple views. And I've really found that that is, number one, something that study Bibles generally don't make time for. They're giving you a particular viewpoint, and so they're just giving that to you as the standard answer. But introduction to the Old Testament or introduction to the New Testament books give you a widespread view of of different approaches to handling a cultural issue, or uncovering a cultural issue, I should say. And that's really helpful because even though the authors are going to lean in one direction or another on any given issue, they're at least going to give you the different arguments, and when they do that, they give you scripture references or they give you the strengths or weaknesses of those arguments. And so what that does is it gives you room to correct your view or it gives you the availability to reinforce your viewpoint and feel much more confident in what you believe. And I I find that to be incredibly valuable. So get yourself a copy of both of those. My recommendation um, for an introduction to the Old Testament is the edition written by Trimper Longman III and Raymond Dillard. Both of those authors in an introduction to the Old Testament 
um, give a great book to cover um, just the initial things that you should know about the Old Testament. And then for the New Testament, probably the most well-known standard in uh, Bible colleges and things like that is the introduction to the New Testament written by D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. You can find all of these on Amazon. Um, incredibly valuable, incredibly helpful, and and not expensive either, okay? And so third for language, um, beyond just learning biblical Greek or biblical Hebrew, um, I'll give you two options. The first one is to go to Bible Hub, Bible Hub, H-U-B dot com, and you can take a look at text in Greek or in Hebrew, and of course, they give you the English renderings for all of those. Uh, this is helpful because when you want to know a Greek word, and even to see how it's translated to different English words, um, you can actually go to a passage you want to look at. For example, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You can look at that word love in the Greek, you can click on it, and everything's hyperlinked on Bible Hub, so it's very usable, very user-friendly. You click on that, and it will actually pull up every single place in the New Testament that that word is used. And this is a great way to just kind of increase your knowledge, increase your breadth of understanding. Um, even if you don't know Greek, you can understand how and where it's used throughout the New Testament. Same thing can be said for Hebrew in the Old Testament, okay? Um, but a book that I recommend that is not a here, let me help you understand everything there is in the Greek language, but it's one that's, okay, if you're not a Bible college student, if you're not a seminary student, but you still want to know some things, I would recommend to you, number one, um, it's called Greek for the Rest of Us. Now, this is written by probably the standard Greek teacher, William Mounts or Bill Mounts. Um, he has the Greek textbook that is used in the most Bible colleges and seminaries in all of the world. He is the standard author on the idea of biblical Greek, but he wrote a book called Greek for the Rest of Us, and his premise is that you don't have to be a Greek student to understand biblical Greek. If you want to learn Greek so you can study better or you can just know your Bible better, um, then this book is for you. And again, this one's inexpensive as well. It's called Greek for the Rest of Us. You can get yourself a copy of that, and you will be well on your way. Finally, what do we do with worldview? Well, I think that beyond just becoming experts in philosophy or getting lost in our own little worlds, I would recommend you to just read one book, and it's a book that I found to be incredibly helpful, and it's brief, but it treats all of the major worldviews. Um, and I found it to be helpful, even though that these worldviews, um, a lot of them are not Christian. But it is so interesting when you just have a survey of the different big league worldviews, and you realize how much of the premises have dripped into Christianity, or at least dripped into Christian culture. You may even find yourself, as a professing Christian, to be representing a mindset or a view of Buddhism, or one of New Age spirituality, or one of Islam. I mean, all of these are huge possibilities because we live in a melting pot society where it's encouraged to be ecumenical. It's encouraged to just let everything mesh together. But we have to realize that worldviews are exclusive ideas, even if we are inconsistent in the way that we stack them on our 
plate of the mind, in our buffet of worldviews, we have to realize um, that it doesn't work that way. But one of the ways to do that is to inform ourselves. And so I recommend to you a book called The Universe Next Door, written by David Sires. And it is incredibly readable, very helpful, used in both Christian and non-Christian academic institutions as just the best, uh, just kind of broad-sweeping survey of worldviews. And I think you'll find it to be tremendously helpful. Okay, so there you have it. Knowing is half the battle, or maybe even more so in this case. So I want you to know about these four roadblocks. There's surely more than these four, but knowing these four, these big ticket roadblocks, knowing them is going to help you know how to avoid them. Wouldn't it be great if before you're on your way to a trip, you know that there's a really bad wreck on the road that you normally take? That's one of the great uh, modern innovations of GPS is when I, for example, I'm getting ready to go on a trip and I open my phone and put in the um, address of where I'm trying to get to. It'll give me like three different travel options. Sometimes those are just for taking the scenic route or not. Um, But when you allow it to show you traffic, whether traffic is light or moderate or heavy, or if there's a road closure or if there's a wreck, when you're able to see that, you can avoid the roadblock before you even get to it. And that's the name of the game here. I want you to be aware of it. If The more you're aware of it, the more you're going to be able to avoid them altogether. But again, even when you get to them, it's not a bad thing. It just turns into a question of how you deal with it. And I want you to deal with it by being well informed. These um, resources that I mentioned to you, the study Bible, the introductory books, uh, the Greek learning software, and the book on the survey of worldviews, all of those are going to be tremendously helpful. Um, make, it a pl- make it a plan. It's June. We have half of the year left, roughly speaking, of course. We have half the year left. That's plenty of time to even read all of these and then start taking some action steps. And my challenge to you, uh, the gold medal challenge, is to take all of these and read all of them. Um, But I would be incredibly grateful to know that you at least have taken action in one of these. What is your weakest roadblock? What is the one that stumps you more than any other? Well, identify that as you listen to this episode and select that resource that I suggested for that roadblock and start to think, start to put a plan into place, start to deal with the roadblock so that you can arrive safely at your destination, which is enjoyable and fruitful and meaningful time spent reading your Bible. All right, friends, that's it for this episode. A little long-winded today, but these are tremendously important issues and ones that I really want you to tackle, and I want you to overcome them so that your reading is enjoyable, as it should be. After all, this is the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode to be helpful, please consider leaving me a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews that show up, the more this show becomes searchable, which means As you review, you're actually helping more and more people discover this podcast, listen to it, and get connected alongside us. I hope you're finding this helpful. I don't know why you'd be listening if you don't, so I'm assuming that you do. So if you do, please consider taking a few moments of your time 
and going and leaving a review for me. I appreciate that so, so much. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day.